Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. I've been reading through and listening to the stuff we've been doing in the Chronological Bible, and many of you are doing it as well, and so I suspect that this last week or so has been some of the harder stuff to get through. With all the laws, like, you know, eating locusts is good and eating shrimp is bad, I think that should be the opposite, right? I mean, that that should really be the opposite. And then there's the laws like you can't wear clothes of mixed fibers, which means if you're here today wearing spandex, you are so wrong for so many reasons. I mean, come on. Then there's the rule about men having their hand cut off if when they're fighting they grab the private parts of the other man, which I'm sure is in every one of your company handbooks because that needs to be there, right? I mean, so many interesting, foreign, strange rules in the Bible. And some wonder, why do we follow some rules and not others? Well, it's not arbitrary, there are actually three categories of laws that you've been reading about in the Old Testament the last week, if you've been with us in the, in the journey this year. There's ceremonial laws that apply to how we worship. The Old Testament is symbol-rich in, in its worship, which is uh, part of the reason many people think the mixed fibers there. It's actually part of the symbols of purity in worship, and, and, and so it's a ceremonial law. Well, those laws may seem foreign to us, Uh, For the people who understood them in that day and acted them out, it was extremely personal and even relational for them to do each of those acts and those things. There's also the civil and social laws that govern Israel's politics and the social order and the health care and other social matters. And then there's moral laws as well. Ceremonial laws are are removed because of uh, they were practices of worship and the sacrifice of animals and those kind of things because when Jesus came and did the perfect sacrifice, we are no longer in need to do those things. Civil laws are historically and situationally based, meaning they form the government, the social structure of that day that makes sense for how they were organized and, and their knowledge of health care and disease. That was all a part of it. And so in a number of ways, with advances in medicine and other things today and changes in culture, we have equally good ways to address the same social order issues and social concerns today. So there are not necessarily absolute laws. So moral laws, though, define what is right and what is wrong, like murder and theft and truthfulness and honoring others and relationships and sexuality and marriage and honest business dealings. And these are viewed as universal and still apply today in the Bible. So to observe the moral laws but dismiss the ceremonial and civil laws is not arbitrary in the least. In fact, the New Testament teaches us how to be, that, that because of Christ's sacrifice, those ceremonial laws we don't need to follow. And it also has an awful lot to say about the social, political, culture, and healthcare-oriented civic and social laws as not being absolute as well. Yet one of the things people have difficulty with regarding the Old Testament in particular is highlighted in Leviticus, which is what we've been reading this last week. It's all the blood, the sacrifices, the killing of the animals. I mean, why all the blood? Well, in order to not spend three years going cover to cover in the Bible like we're doing this year, we can't go into everything. So today we're going to examine the themes and the truths captured in the two most high holy days in the Jewish year, which 
we, you read about this past week. It's Passover, and it's also the Day of Atonement. The meaning of these two high holy days encapsulate for us really the heart of faith, why all the blood, uh, the great, uh, and greatly enriches our understanding of, of Jesus and what he did for us in the New Testament. To address these two holy days, we are, are going to start by laying the foundation of examining the Ten Commandments. And to get there, uh, let's take a moment to kind of build the major story arc from where we left off last week to the giving of the Ten Commandments. So we're going to cover a lot today, but trust me, we're going to get done. And, and I, it, it really, uh, this is so personal and so, so practical. Uh, so we're going to cover some stuff and then we're going to get to the really personal practical stuff. So follow with me. So we left off last week with Joseph saving Egypt, his family and the nations around from famine because God had worked through him and spoke through him. And what I find so thought-provoking in that whole thing is God gave the Egyptians an up-close, powerful, vivid encounter with him. And while they appreciated the blessing of provision during famine, they still didn't turn to God and worship him. In fact, in the story of Joseph, you actually see extreme racism that the Egyptians had toward everybody else. Even Joseph, through whom God had spoken and was now the second in command of Egypt, he wasn't allowed to eat at the same table as Egyptians. There's this barrier there. Even further, the Egyptians have, have think about it, have 14 years between the seven years of abundance and seven years of famine of a vivid reminder of how true and good and generous God is with the abundance and then with the fact that he provided for them even during the famine they became greatly wealthy and were provided for well and yet they still didn't follow God so the story goes on Joseph dies years go by after maybe a hundred years or so the story says Joseph is forgotten and yet Israel continues to rapidly grow and prosper and their prosperity is in and of itself a testimony of God's goodness to the Egyptians. God is still inviting the Egyptians to believe. Instead, the Israelites become seen to the Egyptians as a threat, so they enslave them. So Moses, fast forward, comes on the scene about 320 years after Israel goes to Egypt, and Moses, again, has this miraculous life, miraculously saved from death. He's raised as an Egyptian prince, and one day he's out in the market, and he sees an Egyptian uh, abusing his people, the Israelites, and he murders the guy, and it's found out, so he goes into exile for 40 years. So now, at the end of 400 years, that was prophesied, if you remember, back in Genesis to Abraham, God calls Moses at 80 years old to go back to Egypt to bring Israel out of the promised land. So if you've seen the Ten Commandments, you know all about the ten plagues. Each plague is actually God showing the Egyptians that he is more powerful than the gods they are choosing to worship. Again, giving the Egyptians a chance in that moment to turn to him, but they, they don't. And after the miracle of Joseph, after the the, the blessing of Israel for 400 years, even though they're enslaved, God still blesses them after nine plagues. One would think that anyone would turn to God, but they don't. So the tenth plague is God taking the life of every firstborn in Egypt in judgment of the unbelief and injustice they have perpetrated for generations, for centuries. But if you read that story, the angel of death passes over every Israelite household where the blood of a lamb has been marked on the doorposts. That is 
Passover. We'll talk about that and explain it a little bit more in a moment. Israel, after that, is released to go. Pharaoh changes his mind after he leaves them. He comes after them. You see the whole parting of the Red Sea thing happens. God delivers them. And that event in its, of itself struck terror, the text shows us, in the hearts of the nations within several hundred miles of that happening. We see this even remembered and striking terror in the hearts of people 40 years later when Rahab mentions this event. So they get through the Red Sea, and then in the Israelites' wilderness experience, we actually discover, don't we, how fickle we all are. I mean, they've seen all this stuff, and yet they mess up all the time. How much that we, we get to see in that how much work God has to do in all of us to free us from sin, to change our mindsets, and to repair our corrupted identities to which we have been enslaved because of sin and because of culture's sins around us. See, embedded in the Exodus story are truths of how God heals us, how he frees us, how he transforms our identity so that we can live free and confident and powerful as children of God. If you'd like to examine those themes more, there's a great book by Mike Wilkerson called, the, called Redemption. We've actually done redemption groups here in the past. It's not an easy read. It's going to make you look at your stuff. But it's a fascinating and powerful read in understanding how God works through the Exodus to bring a whole new identity and to bring freedom to people who had been enslaved for 400 years and how we change as people. See, it's in the desert between Egypt and the Promised Land that God gives the people the Ten Commandments. And all these rules in Leviticus, these morals, these, these ceremonial laws, these civil laws we referenced a little bit early, early in Exodus and Leviticus, and in particular the worship patterns and the acts of God, a God wants us to, to do in the Passover and the Day of Atonement. So from here on today, we're just going to focus in on why all the blood? What is God doing in the sacrifices? Why are they needed? Where are we in all of that? And what does that tell us about God and our relationship with God? See, oftentimes people say, certainly we're not so bad. I mean, we're not so sinful that blood should be required. That's the basic argument. I mean, that's harsh. That's unreasonable. We're better than that. Sure, not perfect, but, but not bad. Not deserving death. The answer why all of the blood starts in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are, have formed the bedrock of civil society in many nations of the world since they were given. And they are not, so they're not only important religious statements, they are important civil statements. So let's try to have some fun with this, because this is a little bit of a heavy portion of the message. So we're going to try to attempt to have a little bit of fun with it. We're going to create a win-loss column. And I'm going to, you can create your own in your head, and you can track every own in the head. I'm going to mark up here when I win or lose, depending on each of the Ten Commandments. So here we go. The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So if I do this well, we would mark a W in the column. If I do it bad, we do an L in the lost column. So you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20. So can you honestly say that you've never in your life put something else as more important than God? You've never argued that I know better than God or his word uh, as a way to justify doing something that you wanted to do wrong. 
Can you say your affections, your thoughts, your actions have always been centered on God, putting Him first? For me, I get a big L. Second commandment. You shall have no carved images of me. Now, we generally don't worship wooden and carved metal statues today in America, so I think the way this applies to us more today is how we tend to reshape God to our own liking. His rules, uh, maybe, maybe they seem so harsh to us, so we think, oh, he certainly doesn't mean that, so we make up what we think he really means, and we believe or assent things as true about God and as expectations for good and right, but they're not really what he says and not what he does. See, we worship our own version of God rather than the real God. And again, I wish I could say different, but it's a big fat owl for me. So, three, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. I mean, certainly this has to do with, you know, profane use of his name, saying GD and using Jesus' name in dis dishonorable ways. But, but more importantly, the heart of it is how we hold God and his name either in highest honor or, or we don't. And beyond that, as followers of Jesus, it has to do with how well we represent him. Do we call ourselves followers of Jesus and yet we don't really fully obey him? Have we always lived up to the name Christian? I wish it were different, but again, at least for me, it's a big L. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Certainly this has to do with regular habits of worship together and, you know, being in church and corporate worship together. And I know some people here, when you say that, they say, ah, oh, that's just a promotion to get better church attendance. Well, but listen, listen. This commandment is one of the most repeated, if not the most repeated of the Ten Commandments and strongly stated as a commandment that God makes throughout Scripture. God commands us to regularly stop from the busyness and the business of life to honor Him, the one who gave us life, and to worship Him individually and corporately as a church. To reorient our lives, it is, it is a core spiritual habit. But it also means a, a lot more than that. It, it's the idea of giving your best to God, the idea of trusting and resting in the trust of God rather than trusting in yourself. So do you always give God your best, your time, your money, your talents, or do you give Him the leftovers? Do you believe that your dreams are fulfilled by God or that it is up to you primarily to work really hard for your dreams so that you can never truly rest and shut down and trust Him. See, it's so easy to get busy and allow ourselves in that busyness to crowd out life and crowd out Sabbath, worship, and rest. I've allowed myself to do this and violate it way too often. So for me, it's still an L. Today is actually the first Sunday of Lent, and in Lent, and the, the Christian tradition asks us to give up something during Lent. And, and might I suggest that maybe what we give up and what we focus on in Lent is doing Sabbath well, making a 24-hour period where we unplug, where we endeavor to do our work and household tasks on others' days so that we can thoroughly engage in paying attention and worshiping God in life and just paying attention to life. I mean, doing whatever we do on the Sabbath days without hurry, 
being present to our spouse, being present to our kids, to our family, to our friends, present to the, to the beauty of the sky, so having time to linger and examine ourselves and where God is in all of this life around us without the pressure of a deadline. It might include walking and talking and praying and reading the Bible or another book. It might include relaxing with a thought-provoking movie and napping or playing a game, taking time to be grateful and delight in God and all the good that he has already done and is doing even right now in your life. We're going to post some more devotional resources for Lenten Sabbath on our Facebook site. They're not meant to replace our chronological reading that we're doing, but they're just meant to enrich our spiritual habits and then give us some options during Lent. So number five, honor your parents. Now this certainly applies to parents, we get that, but it also applies throughout Scripture in ways that it speaks to how we relate to authorities in our lives, whether parents, bosses, or government officials. So do you honor them even when you disagree? Or do you disgrace them, gossip about them, talk behind their back about them, and slander them? See, when it doesn't conflict with Christian morality and faith, do you obey their rules and laws willingly? Uh, even when you disagree with them. I mean, politically speaking, I mean, this commandment is in utter disarray even among most Christians, right? How can we honor parents and others well, especially when we disagree is a tough question. And I, I think there as well I get a big L. I let my tongue loose too often, especially in politics when I disagree with somebody or I think somebody's manipulating something. Number six, you shall not kill. Finally, <laughs> one that we get in the wind column, right? But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount comes along and says, anyone who hates another in their heart has already committed murder. He ruins it. Jesus takes murder beyond the act to the heart level. So can you say, not only I have I never murdered someone, but I have never held on to a hateful thought or a hateful response or taken revengeance on somebody? in anger. I've never ever taken pleasure in my enemy failing or falling. Again, kind of a big L on that one. Wish it were different. I mean, some of you violated this like a half a dozen times already today. I mean, you, you were on your way to, on the way to church and somebody was driving crazy and you got mad at him and cursed him, right? Or you hated that person in the news headlines from the party you disagree with that you read about this morning and you said some really awful stuff about them or, or you were daydreaming about telling someone off. We violated this on a regular basis. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Yes, you got me on the murder thing, but I know I didn't do this. Some of you are thinking, and Jesus is going to eventually throw every one of us into the L column, I think, on this one. It's two. He says again in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a hard issue. Have you ever looked at another person to whom you were not married, wondering what it would be like to have sex with them, wanting to have sex with them, lusting after them? Or maybe you didn't do that, but maybe you just longed to be married to them rather than who you were married to. If so, Jesus says you've committed adultery in your heart. You've dishonored God by lusting instead of faithfully, honorably loving even if the other person is not, is not married, the law is extended to include any kind of sex outside of marriage, just not purely what we define as adultery. So again, big L. You're really liking the fact that i got so many L's on myself up here, aren't you? Number eight, you shall not steal. 
Can you say you've never taken anything from anyone that was not yours? Never taken credit for something you didn't do? Never fudged on your expense count to milk a little more money out of your employer? Never fudged the numbers to make a quota? Never fudged the numbers on your taxes? Never left cash income off of your taxes and unreported? Never said to the government, waste this, and I need this more than they do, so I'm never going to get caught by doing this, so it's okay to do this? Never found something that wasn't yours like a 20 on the ground and, and just kept it without even making any attempt to find the original owner and give it back? Never downloaded something from the Internet that was copyrighted that you knew you really should be paying for, that was legal to do, and you still downloaded it and watched it anyway? You joining me in the L there? Nine, you shall not lie. Do any of you need to go back and change a W to an L <laughs> right now? <laughs> Maybe in the exercise. Can you say you've never lied or slandered someone? Never misrepresented someone? Never exaggerated to make something, someone look more evil than they really are? Never said a politician was crooked or evil without knowing all the facts and also knowing their motive for why they did it? We haven't seen any of that at all in the investigations going on the last couple of years, have we? We've never called somebody a communist or a fascist or accused somebody of quid pro quo and abuse of power without first knowing all the facts about what they did and their motives both and really proving it all, have we? We've just, we've never done that. We've never believed and spread political hearsay and gossip to paint the person we disagree with as more evil than they really are. I mean, come on, how big of a capital L can we get on there? I mean, it's, I don't think I have enough ink in this thing. I mean, slander and gossip, I think, are bigger than our day than they've ever been. Number 10, you shall not covet. Can you say you've never been jealous or felt like you deserved what others had? I mean, come on, the entire HGTV channel is built on tempting us to violate this commandment. Can you say you've never, ever resented people's success, their beauty, their talent, their body shape, their intelligence, their possessions, their popularity? Felt like you deserved what other people had and you were resentful or, or demand that you needed, I have to have that? Again, I'm just one hell of a pastor, aren't I? Sorry, bad joke. So what's the point? I'm not here to bash you. I just gave myself 100% L's. The point is, when we ask what's the blood all about, the question often comes from a place where we are trying to say, I'm really quite good. I'm not that bad. Blood, death, too big of a penalty. I don't really deserve death. You know, when it comes to the most holy, powerful, good creator God who defines perfect love, we violate every single one of his ten commandments of what is good and right. And we often argue that he doesn't understand, that he is not right, that we know better, that God is really bad, evil, or stupid in asking us to honor him in these commands. We regularly defame him. And here's the deal. We all know that the greatness of sin is measured by who it is directed against. 
If you are angry with yourself and you punch the wall, that's one thing. But if you are angry and you kick the cat, that's another thing, right? And if you are angry and you attack your spouse, it is a whole different thing. And if you are angry and you attack the president, you're either going away for a long time if you actually survive the bullets of the Secret Service, right? And if you're angry and defame the most holy, loving, purely good God, it's the greatest sin of all. Even if we don't do some of the lesser sins, we defame God regularly. So when God asks us to honor him with our wealth, but we choose vacations or a nicer kitchen or a nicer house over honoring him, we defame God. When, we, when God commands us to honor him by honoring others and hold to sexual purity as, his, as he prescribes, and we say, ah, oh, that's old-fashioned, that's restrictive, not serious, making a big deal out of nothing, not worth listening to, or even say, he created us that way, we attack and defame God. The point is, we all deserve death. We all utterly defame and attack the most holy, good creator of all that exists. But God is so loving, so patient, so merciful, so desiring to forgive us and love us that he provides a substitute for the penalty of our sin and a way for us to be free of it. This is partially what we see in the Passover. The people of Israel were just as sinful as the Egyptians. They doubted God, they defamed God, but God shows us that by taking a step of faith to recognize their sin and ask for forgiveness, that he saves them. See, the blood above the doorposts of each house didn't buy salvation at Passover. It was a tangible symbol of their trust and faith in God's mercy. And the Day of Atonement, the most holy day of the year for the Jews, and the sacrifices done on that day described the depth of God's love even more vividly for us. I mean, practically what this deals with is the fact that we all sin. But beyond that, the lesson of the Day of Atonement deals with a problem that we all face personally every day. The feeling of shame and guilt about failing to be good enough. Every one of us has those areas of sins, whether it's hidden or not, whether it's secret or not, that eats us up. Even if what happened is in the past, when it comes up in our mind, we feel guilty and we often get caught in shame being angry and self-condemning. And we're forced to answer the question, what kind of a person am I if I did that? And our answers are often not very kind to ourselves, are they? For some, you've confessed sin and you've asked for forgiveness, but the shame endures. And that shame is, is seen in you as, as you judge yourself, as you get angry at yourself, as you get anxious and frustrated with yourself. But it also leads us to wonder and live life wondering if God will judge us, even to expect God's wrath. So we interpret a lot of difficult things in our life as maybe God really is judging me in this moment. We expect it. And that shame is also behind so much of the reasons why we distance ourselves from God, why we find it difficult to pray and get close to God. Let me ask you a simple question. And I know this question has been used manipulatively in the past, so I'm just going to ask you to hear it and simply respond to it with honest integrity. If you died today, 
Are you fully confident that you will be welcomed into heaven with God? That you are good enough to be welcomed into heaven with God? And an answer of that that says, well, he better if he's merciful and loving, or an answer that says, I think so, but doesn't really represent full confidence. See, Leviticus, and in particular, the sacrifices on the Day of the Atonement are highly practical and relevant for you and me today because it answers for us the question, since I am guilty, since I know I struggle with shame and self-condemnation, how can I find confidence in the forgiveness and the acceptance of God? So let's examine the sacrifices made on the Day of Atonement. The easiest way, first let's define that. The easiest way of defining the word atonement for us is this. It's, a lot of people just use the, the, the idea it's at one meaning God is trying to bring us back into oneness with him in relationship and unity with him, right relationship. Now how does that happen? Well, in Leviticus 16, we see the priest having to offer a sacrifice of a bull for himself and then for the sins of the people, he offers two goats. We're going to examine those two goats and what the meaning of that is for us. Verse 9, Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for the sin offering. That's goat number one. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord. That's two. To be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, in some translations, this is a translation that tries to make, it, make sense of the meaning of it. And some do a little more literal translation. They actually translate a word Azaziel, you'll see. The lit- it's a literal translation. Azaziel is a term that refers to the idea of sending that goat upon which we have placed our sins out to be consumed by demonic forces out in the wilderness, to send our sin back out to the wilderness. So this is a powerful symbol that is so personally relatable and meaningful for each and every one of us in this room. God has not only forgiven you through the sin offering, mercifully accepting the death of a goat in your place. But God has taken away your sin from you. Psalm 103, I think, captures the idea of the scapegoat in poetry when it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, some people look at this text and they say, well, God forgets our sins. I don't think that's actually the best way of describing what he does and what happens. What it's saying is in the scapegoat in that text as well in Psalm, God removes our sin from our presence, from being a part of us. He takes it away. He sends it away on the scapegoat so that our sins are never considered ever again against us and never seen as being a part of us ever again. They are removed from us, removed from identifying who we are. They are no longer part of our identity. See, one tradition even suggests, this is kind of funny, the reason the priest was assigned to take the scapegoat into the wilderness was to ensure that the the goat fell off a cliff because what would happen if the scapegoat came back into town with all the sins on it? That's just, that wouldn't be good. See, God is concerned not just with forgiving you, but he's concerned with removing the memory, the stain, the identity that that sin has created in you. He wants you to be completely free, for you to be forgiven and completely 100% free. See, God doesn't just want to deal with your guilt. 
He wants to remove the shame so you can walk in confidence as a loved child of God. So here's a question I think would be really helpful for all of us to ponder. In what way does your forgiven sin still define you? Where in life have you accepted God's forgiveness, but you still hold on to the shame that's there? Still hold on to the identity of that. So you still go through life saying, I'm not good enough because of I did this. I'm not lovable because of what I did. I'm not worthy because of what I did. God can't work through me and use me because of what I did. That is simply not true. If you're holding on to that, you are believing a lie. God forgives and He removes the sin from your presence, sending it far away. He wants you to walk in new identity found in Him, in a new identity found in Him. Now, now this may feel like an aside what I'm about to say here, but, but it's not. Many people, including pastors and preachers, and misunderstand the Old Testament sacrificial system. I know I did until I took a, a graduate school course in Old Testament with this 85-year-old guy who is one of the biggest Old Testament scholars of his day. Uh, when one reads this, we so often think, well, God created the system where we sacrifice something and we buy our forgiveness. It's transactional, right? We, if we sin, then we just grab a goat and we offer it and, and it's a transaction. For some of you, you you have once treated and maybe even still treat your faith that way. You you treat confession or penance or, or whatever it is that way. It's a transaction. You're trying to earn your way. So some people say that's actually what the Old Testament is. It works, the, it was, the Old Testament was by law and by works, uh, and not by grace and faith. So some people say the New Testament is by grace. So some would further argue that means as Christians, we don't have to pay that much attention to the Old Testament. In fact, some people say we don't have to pay any attention to it. That's simply not the case. That's actually an argument from a shallow, incorrect reading of the Old Testament, and it lacks understanding of what is actually happening in these sacrifices of the animals. See, you would have noticed in many places over the last week as you read Leviticus that when you as a person offered a sacrifice for your sin, before the lamb or dove was killed, you had to place your hand on the head as a symbol of passing your sin to the animal. As you read, you would have also noticed that when you offered sacrifice to God for a sin or for a thanksgiving offering, that you were to bring a lamb without blemish. Bring your best to God. In fact, if you brought your leftovers you were subject to judgment by God. Now here's what so many easily forget and miss. Every Jew offering a sacrifice knows the penalty of their sin is death. Every Jew offering a sacrifice knows that they are made in the image of God and that these animals they are sacrificing are not. Every Jew knows that God, in allowing this sacrifice to happen, is a gift of God because even bringing my best lamb is a pittance compared to the price that should be paid. There is no buying of forgiveness in the sacrificial system. Every time they lay their hands on the head of that lamb to be sacrificed, they are recognizing that this should be me, but it isn't. That God is so merciful, He makes a way for me that is so completely undeserving 
So even in the sacrifice of the animals in the Old Testament, when it's rightly understood, it is a recognition of salvation by faith in God's mercy. I mean, sure, like many Christians today and and churches today, people deceive themselves into thinking, I can be saved by the act of communion or as some mysterious transaction paying for my sin. I can be saved by my good works, by serving in the church, by baptism, by giving giving to the poor. I can be good enough. I can buy my way. But for those who rightly understand the Bible, everything is set in the context of humanity being made in the image of God so that even the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is this rich, beautiful, symbolic worship experience of receiving undeserved forgiveness and salvation by faith in God's mercy. So more than a thousand years later than that, Jesus comes to earth and God orchestrates having himself sacrificed on the cross on Passover the second highest holy festival of the year, to save us from death. And the Bible also teaches us that Jesus makes atonement for us in taking our sins upon uh, upon Himself. He becomes our substitute, shedding His blood to die for us in order to pay for our sins. And Jesus is a scapegoat. The text says Jesus was crucified, taken outside the city, so that He has done the work to remove that sin from our identity, to free us completely from all of it, to become who we were truly created to be. That's really powerful. But here's what I think is the most powerful in this story and the imagery of the atonement. The people weren't allowed even into the outer courts of the temple during the atonement sacrifice. They weren't allowed to do anything. The priest took the lamb, slaughtered it, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, the priest laid his hand on the lamb, on the scapegoat's head, and placing the people's sin on it. And the people did nothing. Here's where it's really fascinating. In Jesus, it says Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the one self-directing this offering for us. At one point, Jesus says, I lay down my life willingly. You can't take it from me. I do this Uh, willingly. It's my choice and I'm going to do it willingly. And Jesus also is both of the goats of the atonement. He's the sin offering and he's the scapegoat. He is everything. He's everything. In the Old Testament, because the gift was not commensurate with the crime, offerings had to be made over and over again. But Jesus, the perfect son of God, died once for all and says, it is finished. No more need for sacrifices. Have you noticed um, that people nowadays will sue for almost anything? Maybe you remember Robert Lee Brock suing himself for $5 million because his crimes violated his religious beliefs. You remember that one? Or maybe you remember Alan Heckard who sued Michael Jordan and Nike for emotional trauma because Heckard looked so much like him, everybody on the street kept coming up to him like he was Michael Jordan. Or the D.C. judge who sued the dry cleaners for $67 million because he lost his pair of trousers. In 1830, I think George Wilson takes the cake of all the worst ones. He was convicting of robbing the U.S. Postal Service along with his co-conspirator James Porter. The way they did it ended up being a sentence of death for them. Porter was executed a month later, but Wilson was granted a pardon by President Andrew Jackson. What did Wilson do? 
He sued to refuse to accept the pardon. Who does that? I mean, if you read the history of it, it wasn't like he was suicidal trying to do death by cop or death by whatever you want to call this one. He just sued. So in 1833, it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. They ruled on the case saying that a pardon is a deed that is not complete without acceptance of that deed. It may therefore be rejected by the person to whom it is given. And if rejected, the court has no power to force it on them. The tragedy is many, like the Egyptians, to whom God showed so much power and so much grace and love and patience, will end up rejecting Jesus and go to hell. They will not accept the pardon offered, just like George Wilson. Do you know that you need to be saved? Do you really know the cost of blood that is required because of who you are and what you've done and what you've not done? All you need to do is receive Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf and rest in what God has done. You simply accept His forgiveness. You accept His scapegoat removal of your sinful identity and His freedom that He wants to bring you into a new identity and you accept His authority as your high priest. You don't earn anything. You don't do anything. You simply receive. See, the problem we face, I think, as humans in relation to all the blood is we understate and under-recognize the depth of our own sin. And at the same time, we undervalue and ignore the greatness of the sacrifice God did in Jesus to save us. We may argue, I'm forgiven, but we would say, I'm still not good enough. And so we only accept one of the goats of the atonement, We accept forgiveness, but we don't accept the freedom and we don't accept the new identity that God gives us and walk confidently in that. Instead, we keep trying to earn it rather than receive it. We keep trying to to, to do things good enough instead of just living in the joy and the grateful response for what we've received. As we close, what if you saw your entire response to the Christian life being a response of praise for what Jesus did. That that's the entirety of the response Jesus is asking. For you to praise Him and express the joy of the sacrifice He's done for you every single day. Have you accepted that gift? Or are you still trying to earn it? Are you increasingly, if you have accepted that gift, are you increasingly resting internally in God being with you and for you, always there with you and for you, instead of letting the shame cloud the view of who God says you are and still trying to prove yourself, are you responding with grateful, praise-oriented, generous obedience to God because you are so loved? Or are you still like the Israelites in the Exodus story, constantly returning to trying to make it happen, constantly returning to anxiety and fear instead of trusting the work God has already done for you and the fact that he's going to continue to show up in your life. We celebrate communion today. It's a perfect day to celebrate it because what we get to celebrate is the fact that Jesus took upon his body our sins. 
And he took him not only and forgave us with the shedding of his blood, but he was sent outside the city so that he can offer us complete freedom. That our identity can be new in him. It's the reason the scripture says, when you follow him, you are a new creation. Will we receive that? Will we allow ourselves to walk in the confidence of that? Or will we still walk in our shame? Communion is the opportunity for us to to tangibly take this and say, God, thank you. Thank you that all my sins are on this, that you've forgiven me, that I can move forward. Communion servers, if you could come, let me pray for you. Lord, thank you that your spirit is here. Thank you that we're not just talking about you in an abstract sense, but you are here. So Lord, I pray for every one of us in the areas where we have allowed shame to rule, that you would come right now by your spirit and you would remove that. It would be gone. That the power of that would be crushed in our lives and that we would receive the outpouring of your love and your acceptance and the confidence you want us to walk in. That the things we've said that we feel like you want us to do that we say we can't do because we're not good enough, that we would walk into confidently with great joy because we truly accept who you are and what you've done for us. And for Lord, those, those here who have always lived their life as, as um, trying to be good enough, They've never really surrendered their life to you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rest upon them right now, showing them how much you adore them, how good you are to them right now. So that in this moment, there would be more than just an idea, but a tangible sense of your presence drawing them to you. As we take communion, everybody's welcome to take it. If you're here today and you are, not, you are one of those people who has not turned your life over to Jesus or you are not uh, yet fully convinced that you're ready to make that decision, you're welcome to take communion to us as long as you, do the, as long as you take it this way. When you get the elements, I want you to just say a prayer. God, if you, are, if you really came as Jesus, if you are this tangible to me and want to be this tangible to me, and if you really did die for my sin, then would you make that known to me? Just make that your prayer as you receive communion. Come and receive communion. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, Or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.